Okay, sorry, we don't have a handout this morning, um, mostly because it's not going to be that. Um, it's more. Of, this is going to be more of an overview. Um, today was a lot of scripture, as you all know um, from looking at right. Um, and luckily, we're about to take a turn and start really delving deep into just a few verses at a time instead of doing these like two entire chapters at a time, which I'm looking forward to. Um, let me pray for us, and then we're just going to jump on in. Uh, Lord, we come before you this morning um, weary and some of us tired um, after the you know first month of new year and new stuff starting. Um, I just pray that you would meet us all in that, um, that you would bring us rejuvenation as we turn to your word um, and learn what you might have for us here this morning. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You feel like you threw me off, Ada, because I always am like, hi, I'm Christina. But she already did that. So, hey, I'm Christina. Um, Yeah. So, this year, as we know, we're going to be studying the Sermon on the Mount. Um, The Sermon on the Mount basically consists of Jesus, he's the one who preaches it, giving us a blueprint or a sketch of what the kingdom of God looks like. Um, and what characterizes the people who will inherit this kingdom. It's one of the most significant texts in Scripture for understanding Christian ethics and how Christians should live their lives. Um, And we're going to really quickly find out as we jump in here starting next week that the Sermon on the Mount is very difficult. Um, It's filled with unattainable standards and backwards descriptions of those who succeed from what we're used to. Um, Jesus describes his kingdom as a place where the poor are actually the ones who receive the most. The sad and the brokenhearted are the blessed ones. Um, And he talks about persecution like a bunch, like it's happening a lot in his kingdom. Um, So it's definitely not a self-help book. (laughs) It's not a how to find your happy, healthy, abundant life. Um, It's not a manual to be the best version of yourself. And in so many ways, it's really difficult to read and hard to swallow because it is so backwards of what the kingdom of this world presents for us as the way to live. Um, So we thought before we delved into that, we want to take a step back and ask ourselves, why should we even listen to the sermon at all? Um, Why should we submit to its teachings? Um, So to do that, we're spending these two weeks in the first four sections. The sermon starts in Matthew 5. We're spending, so the first four chapters of Matthew, um, delving into these. This one's the second. Terry did the first two last week. Um, Just to give us a picture of who this person is who's going to be preaching this sermon to us. Um, So the big question that I want to ask today is, who should we listen to as an authority in our lives? Who should we as Christians look to for answers as to how we may best live? It's a really big question. Um, I think it's really relevant today, especially for like our cultural moment, because in the age of social media and YouTube and Twitter and blogs, uh, it's become really difficult to discern who's worthy of listening to, right? Um, Who we should turn to to learn about a certain topic, because (laughs) everyone seems to be an expert, right, on something. Um, It doesn't require any exams to log on to Twitter and create a viral thread or record yourself on YouTube. Um, And knowing who to listen to is really challenging in 2018. Um, I think the effects of this phenomenon are widespread, and I could go in all kinds of tangents, but I won't. I think one that is pertinent to our conversation today is that we simultaneously tend to be, like, pretty critical of everything. I think we're going to bring that into our study this year. Um, 
But then we also, I think, end up just tending to agree with what we already knew we agreed with (laughs) and disagreeing with what we already knew we didn't disagree with. We're calling it fake news, right? That's the new trend. Um, But our passage today is going to confront this phenomenon head on and show us, sorry, that listening to the Sermon on the Mount isn't a choice, that agreeing with it is irrelevant, and that submitting to it is required. And this all stems from the man who preaches the sermon. So if you call yourself a Christian, you can know as we embark on studying the sermon that this is Christ's word to you, for you, and over you. In our time together today, we're going to see that Matthew urges us to listen to Jesus because of who he is. We're going to see that he has authority over our lives because he is the king of God's kingdom. He is perfectly righteous, and he is our representative. So we're going to do that. But first, let's talk about why we might be tempted not to listen to Jesus. So, the first four chapters of Matthew present us with this really strange paradox. Um, He's attempting, Matthew is attempting to give us this picture of Jesus, right? Who he is, and because of who he is, what his kingdom is going to look like. Um, And it's a pretty unusual portrait. Um, Terry did a wonderful job last week of walking us through the first two chapters, which include his genealogy, which um, show us that Jesus comes from a line where he simultaneously has an extremely unimpressive lineage filled with prostitutes and terrible leaders and faithless men but the most prestigious pedigree imaginable in the kingdom of God because he's the son of Abraham and the son of David, this long-promised Messiah. Um, We saw that he had quite a humble birth from a worldly perspective to an unwed teenage mom, um, but the exact birth he needed as the son of God who was conceived by the Holy Spirit. So this paradox is already set up for us, right? This strange man, Jesus, is not who I think the Jews thought he would be, right? Um, and then, to make it even stranger, um, sorry, he's persecuted, right? So the rulers of his day, King Herod, decide they don't want, he doesn't want any threat to his, his kingship. And so he just has, you know, says that all the babies should be killed. Um, so they, he and his family leave and they go to Egypt. And Matthew is so clear to show us that this really is the Messiah. But this is not what you would think a Messiah would be doing, Right? like hiding out in a foreign land to avoid being killed by the state. It's this really strange paradox. And it's going to continue as we delve into chapters 3 and 4. And we're going to meet John the Baptist, right? He's a very peculiar man (laughs) Um, who claims to be the one who Isaiah prophesied would come and prepare the people for the coming Messiah. This man, John, who is baptizing people and rebuking religious leaders. And then Jesus shows up. He's Remember, the son of Abraham, the son of David, and he comes to him and he asks him, will you baptize me? And after some hesitation on John's part, that Jesus actually needs baptism, or that John is worthy to baptize him, which we're going to talk about again in a little bit, uh, John baptizes him and the coolest thing happens, right? The heavens open up and voices declare, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. And then immediately we see that Jesus is led by the Spirit into the desert to fast for 40 days. And while he's hungry and thirsty and no doubt aching, In the heat of the desert, he encounters intense spiritual persecution and temptation from Satan himself. A paradox, right? (laughs) Baptism and then spiritual battle. Um, A voice from heaven and then literally a voice from hell. Comfort and then conflict. Strength and then weakness. Literally water at the baptism and then intense thirst in the dry heat of the wilderness. The paradox right here, I want to dwell on this for a second. I think is the biggest reason why we might be tempted not to believe the Sermon on the Mount or to listen to Jesus. Because we don't really want to believe that this is the Christian life. But we see after Jesus' time in the wilderness, right, he comes back 
and John gets arrested, which is another paradox. Um, and Jesus begins preaching, and he says, Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. So even though we are tempted to believe this is not the Christian life, it is. There is no mistake. The kingdom of God is at hand. This is a paradoxical, upside-down, backwards kingdom of God. And Jesus is clear to show us that this is his kingdom because he is the king. And where he reigns, there the kingdom of heaven is already present. Um, so I find myself tempted not to listen to Jesus because the kingdom of God seems so countercultural to our world, right? Because it's really hard. <laughs> because it requires self-sacrifice instead of self-preservation. Um, I don't want to believe that the kingdom of God is filled with like the arrest of his prophets. <laughs> All right, the man who just baptized him is now being arrested. Um, and spiritual attacks. And instead, I'm tempted to believe that the kingdom of God is filled with powerful triumphs for his people um, or worldly success or comforts. More of the I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me <laughs> emphasis and less on a John's head was served on a platter to Herod one. Um, I think, <laughs> seriously, I think I struggle to believe the kingdom is really this way because it is unbelievable. Because there are so many competing versions of the good life out there, and those don't end in self-sacrifice. It kind of reminds me, this whole paradox, I've been thinking about it, kind of reminds me of like the way we idealize marriage, Um, and it makes it hard to believe, right? So like think about the way we romanticize marriage, and we talk about like how your life won't even begin until you get married, and the way romance and dating, and it's all like depicted in movies, right? Um, We talk about soulmates and true love and marital bliss, but anyone who's been married for longer than like a vacation after your wedding realizes (laughs) that marriage is hard. It's filled with two sinners, right, who have different desires and dreams and hopes for their lives and dirty laundry and bills and irritating in-laws and annoying family traditions and unrealistic expectations. And yet, like the kingdom of God, this is actually what makes marriage beautiful, It isn't that it's easy, and it isn't that it's always filled with joyful laughter or romantic affection. It's beautiful because it's filled with self-sacrifice, with putting someone else's needs before your own, and with thinking of yourself less and your spouse more. But the question is, before you experience marriage for yourself, would you have wanted to believe that this is what made marriage beautiful? (laughs) Would you have wanted to believe that it was hard? I think most of us would say no. We liked our fairy tale. And I think the same is true for the kingdom of God. Or it is for me, at least. I'm tempted to dismiss Jesus and his difficult teachings about his kingdom because I prefer a different kind of fairy tale. But Matthew is quick to show people like me that his kingdom is the best kingdom out there. Not in spite of his difficult callings, but because of it. Because it belongs to the king. And he is worthy of listening to. So, why should we listen to Jesus? (laughs) Let's delve right into it. Because he's the king of his kingdom. And we see this right at his baptism. Um, So we should listen to and trust Jesus as an authority in our lives as we turn to the Sermon on the Mount because he is the king of this kingdom he is describing. Um, Okay, so we just talked about his baptism, right? Jesus is baptized and the heavens are opened up and the Spirit of God descends and a loud voice declares, this is my beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased. Now, when we read this today, we see this term like he is my Son or Son of God and we usually think of the second person of the Trinity, right? But that's actually not probably what Matthew had in mind when he says this. Hold on, sorry. And we know this because what, what Matthew records God the Father saying is actually quoting Scripture. He's quoting Scripture in two places. The first one we're going to look at is Psalm 2. Um, and in Psalm 2 is a royal messianic psalm about God's anointed king, who he calls his son, who he will make 
the nations his heritage, right? And the ends of the earth his possessions. So the Jewish readers of this gospel, remember that's who Matthew wrote this to, is primarily Jewish readers, definitely would have known this reference. That is what they would have been thinking of when they hear God the Father say, this is my son. Um, And they knew what it meant for the identity of Jesus. This was the son of Yahweh, the king of Israel. This was an enthroning moment. As God, as God, Jesus had been son since all eternity, the second person of the Trinity, right? But as human, he became son, the king of Israel, in this moment. And he begins to fulfill the eschatological promise laid out in Psalm 2, to make the nations his heritage and the ends of the earth his possession. So where is the paradox here, right? This kingdom paradox that we keep saying, I keep saying is always present. Well, the paradox of God's kingdom is present in several ways at Jesus' baptism. Okay, so remember how we said that Jesus approached John to be baptized first, and John is like, what? Me? Like, I'm not going to baptize you. What makes me worthy to baptize you? You are the lamb, the lamb, right? The perfect one who takes away the sins of the world. You don't need baptism. Um, You have nothing to be cleansed from, right? Um, And how does Jesus respond? I think this, this is really key. This is where the paradox is. He says, for now, it needs to be this way, right? Let it be so now to fulfill all righteousness. And here's the paradox. Jesus takes the place that John should have and the place that you and I should have and he lets the cleansing waters of baptism wash over him. The king of Israel, right? He's just been pronounced the king of Israel, the ruler of the kingdom of God. He submits to the father in baptism because as the king, he is the true representative of God's people. The paradox is represented in the second half of the word spoken from heaven. Okay, so remember how I said he was quoting from two places? So the first half is from Psalm 2. The second half, with whom I am well pleased, this is my son, with whom I am well pleased, is from Isaiah 42. And this time, instead of a king, he's referencing this picture we studied last year. It's from one of these suffering songs um, in Isaiah of a suffering servant, of a man who would suffer and die for his people. And this is the paradox of God's kingdom. Yes, this man is a king, the king of God's kingdom. But this king won't be like King David and achieve great military success and a prosperous time for his people. This king will suffer and he will die as the representative of his people. And all of this is initiated at his baptism. So, continuing with this theme of what might make us struggle to listen to Jesus. Um, I think one of the things, as we're talking about his kingship, is we think we know better than the king sometimes. Um, I don't know if any of y'all are fans of The Crown, but I am. It's this Netflix original show about Queen Elizabeth II's life, which is kind of weird because she's like still alive and the monarch, and they're making this show about her life. Um, but it's really good. Um, and it begins by showing her father, King George VI. I don't remember one of them. The VI? Yeah. Look at me. Um, he dies really prematurely. It's sad. He gets lung cancer and he dies. Um, And she, Elizabeth, is like this newlywed and wasn't planning on being queen for a while, but she's thrust into the monarchy at a very young age. And with without all the preparation she needs, and everybody kind of assumes she would have more time with her dad to learn the, you know, ropes and way of way of the crown. Um, And the first two seasons are filled with this really frustrating tension as those around her, like her trusted advisors, including the prime minister himself um, and the archbishops of the church, because she's the head of both, right? Um, they all think they know better than she does about the decisions she should be making because she's young and this wasn't supposed to happen so soon. But the decisions that are hers and hers alone to make because she's the sovereign. 
They don't believe she is capable of making these decisions given the circumstances of her coronation and her apparent lack of respect for tradition. Um, But they seem to forget their own beliefs about her monarchy again and again, and that is that they believe that God himself has set her aside at her coronation as queen and has equipped her to rule Great Britain as the sovereign. They might have more knowledge about military or theology or the economy, but they are not the queen. She is. And in our text today and throughout the rest of Matthew, I think we see the Pharisees react similarly, right? If we're being honest, I think we're tempted to do the same. The Pharisees again and again think that they know better than Jesus. He doesn't have the pedigree or the training that they thought he would come from. He doesn't, he isn't taking the Roman government by force, right? And overthrowing them. He isn't respecting their rabbinic tradition and the supplementary laws that they've added to the gospel to protect themselves, protect themselves from sinning, right? But he is the king, led by the Spirit, and he knows what he is doing. And it's worth asking ourselves as we go into the study this year, where do we think we know better than Jesus about holy living? Or about what we can handle? Or about how we think we know better than Jesus? (coughs) Sorry, where do we think we know better than Jesus about what is best for his people? Okay, Jesus is king. Now we're going to look at how he's perfectly righteous. So the paradox will continue. And Jesus is baptized, and he receives the Spirit, and the Spirit leads him into the desert, right? To fast for 40 days and 40 nights. This is the first thing that happens after he's named the Son of God, the King of Israel, the representative of God's people. (laughs) He's tempted. But let's not miss the significance of the setting in which he is tempted. Um, Sorry, I keep losing my place. Okay. So, he goes to the wilderness, right? For 40 days and 40 nights which is no coincidence. Matthew is showing us through painstaking detail that this man really is the new Israel. Remember how Israel was like redeemed from Egypt and they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years before they made it to the promised land? Well, that Israel failed, was tempted, and failed and gave into temptation a bunch. But the new Israel, God's son, would be tempted for 40 days and would not fail. He would not give into these temptations. We don't have time to go here right now into all the temptations. I'm hoping y'all did in your small groups. Um, But, like, overview-wise, he's tempted by Satan in in the desert in ways that challenge both his sonship that he was just given, right, and his messiahship. Um, Satan uses what he knows to be true about the son and about the messiah as a way to tempt him to gain his power through force instead of submission. To take what is rightfully his instead of giving up what is his and his privilege so that others might gain the same. Um, Theologians also believe that the three ways Jesus was tempted are representative of all of the temptation that humans will experience. They summarize it as the lust of flesh, giving in to his hunger, the lust of the eyes, which is like the desire to possess, and the pride of life. But unlike the Israelites and unlike their leader Moses, the true Israel, the true son of God, the better Moses, he doesn't give in. He fights against the tempter's taunts, armed with the word of God that he just received and the spirit that he just received at his baptism. So through his temptation, Jesus models for us that the antidote to desire is to believe, and the antidote to lust is to trust. Okay, He believes what God says about him to be true, and he trusts what God is doing in leading him through the temptations. By doing this and resisting temptation, he proves to us that he is perfectly righteous able to be tempted in every way, as the book of Hebrews tells us, and yet without sin. And the paradox of the kingdom is written all over this encounter. 
right? We already said it. He crown, he's crowned king and he's driven into the desert. Like, this is, this is not what I think of about the Christian life. And yet here he is. Um, okay, so how does Jesus' righteousness challenge us to trust Jesus as we go into um, studying the Sermon on the Mount this year? Um, I think when it comes to Jesus' righteousness, we struggle to listen to him because we don't really believe our sin or the evil forces at work in the world are really that bad. Um, <laughs> this temptation story is startling to us, I think, today especially, because of how much evil is at work at, hand, at the hand of the devil, right? Um, like, our culture today does not leave room for spirituality, like, in general. It's like the God within and all this stuff, right? But definitely not for, like, evil spirits. I mean, that's never talked about. Um, and I think that we let that creep into the church. Um, so I think if we're honest, or I tend to think about Christianity most often as, like, the right way to think about things instead of, like, an actual relationship with the divine God, all-powerful, mighty God of the universe. Um, And we tend to focus on the depravity of humanity alone as the source of all evil and ignore the accuser and tempter altogether. So we don't really think our sin is that bad in a lot of ways, and we don't really think the king of darkness is as powerful as he is in a lot of ways. Um, And it's a dangerous place to be because it tempts us not to listen to Jesus. We don't want to believe him that our sin is really as bad as the Sermon on the Mount is going to make it seem. And we really don't want to believe Satan is out there causing destruction, but he is. Think about all the things he tempts Jesus with and ask yourself, am I tempted with those same desires all the time? Am I tempted to give in to my flesh? Am I tempted to possess things that I don't or maybe even shouldn't have? Am I tempted to preserve my own life because I don't trust that God's self-denial will really lead to salvation? These are questions to consider as we enter into the Sermon on the Mount. Why does Jesus' righteousness matter? And are we really that unrighteous? <laughs> okay. So he is our king, the king of this kingdom, right? He is perfectly righteous. And finally, he is our suffering servant. So the question is, what does this all have to do with the Sermon on the Mount, right? The point is this. Matthew wrote his gospel intentionally. Okay? It's ordered this way for a reason, and that's why we wanted to go through these chapters first. So first, he is identifying who Jesus is before he tells us about his kingdom. So before we submit ourselves to the teachings of Jesus found in the sermon, we must first see that he has all the authority of heaven and on earth to be speaking to us in the way, in this way. He is the king. He is the suffering servant and the perfectly righteous son of God. So as the king, he has all of the authority he needs to tell us about his kingdom. It is his. He gets to tell us who's in and who's out, right? He gets to characterize the people that live in this kingdom. Um, As a righteous son of God who faced temptation in every way and never succumbed, never even had a sinful desire or thought, he has all the authority he needs to tell us about righteousness and how to be righteous, because he is righteous. But he's also the suffering servant, and this is where we're going to end today. Jesus is our representative. He is the new Adam. He wasn't baptized for his own sake. He didn't need to repent or receive the cleansing waters of baptism. He was baptized so that in his humanity, he could become our true representative. He wasn't tempted for his own sake. He was tempted for ours. He faced every sinful desire we will ever experience that he could look the accuser in the eye and choose good. Choose righteousness. Choose to believe and to trust instead of succumbing to sin. And he did this because the first Israel failed. They couldn't do it. And we can't do it, right? They sinned and they sinned again and again and grumbled and complained and didn't trust God, was willing or able to do what he promised them he would do. Um, This distinction is key. Oh, sorry. 
skip sentence. <laughs> so Jesus isn't just an example for us, right, to follow. He is our representative. And this distinction is key when it's going to come to studying the Sermon on the Mount. Because the Sermon on the Mount is filled, like we've, I've been saying, with hard things and big challenges and immense calling on our life. And if Jesus is merely an example to us, we will be crushed under the weight of it all. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus honestly depicts the paradox of God's kingdom, and we will be tempted not to believe that this is true. We will be tempted not to listen to him because we don't want to believe that God's kingdom is filled with persecution and self-sacrifice, turning the other cheek or extending mercy or giving up our comfort or our resources, right? But this is the Christian life. And Jesus isn't an example. He is our representative so that we can be sure that just as the spiritual blessing at his baptism was immediately followed by spiritual persecution and warfare, that's probably how our lives are going to look too. But he doesn't call us to do anything that he himself hasn't as our perfect representative, already done on our behalf. And that's what we have to see. We must remember this as we study the Sermon on the Mount. He is laying out for us a picture of the very life he lived on our behalf. Right? He lived for you. He faced every temptation for you. He left the glory of heaven to become like you. He died for you, and he was raised for you. And we must always keep this substitutionary relationship in mind when we turn toward looking at God's kingdom. We must always remember that he is not calling us to do anything that he hasn't already done for us. And he won't, or that won't lead us toward salvation or the salvation of another, right? The Sermon on the Mount can never be divorced from a right relationship with God, or else we'll just be tempted to ignore it altogether and not listen to Jesus, or try to pick up our bootstraps and do it ourselves. And both paths lead to (laughs) self-destruction. So, in order to flourish in this kingdom, you must know who the king is, right? We've been saying this. Um, Sinclair Ferguson says that this is what is so unique about this sermon in particular, that we can be, like, helped through other sermons, even written by pastors that we can, like, access on the internet that we never knew or may never meet. But that's not the case with this sermon. He says, this teaching will only change us when we submit to the sovereign and gracious reign of the one who preaches it. For the Sermon on the Mount enshrines in its teaching the authority and lordship of Jesus himself. So we can and must listen to Jesus as an authority as we embark on this journey this year. Because we are going to encounter hard things together as we study this. Um, We're going to study this paradoxical kingdom ruled by this paradoxical king. But he has promised to meet us there. And that through the difficult teachings and hardships and self-sacrifice and even persecution... We will meet him. Just like Jesus in the wilderness, we must believe that through him, as our representative, as our substitute, as our finished work, right, through his finished work on the cross, that we are also God's beloved daughters with whom he is well pleased. And trust that this upside-down kingdom is actually the way to salvation. Um, Sorry. So even when Satan tempts us to doubt, like he did Jesus, if you really are the Son of God, right? We must believe what God says about us to be true really is. We must believe that as we embark on this. And we must live every by every word that comes from the mouth of God, like Jesus says, right? We must trust him with our fears and our doubts, even when this calling seems too difficult and his path too narrow. Because we are his beloved daughters, and with us he is well pleased. So... As far as who we should listen to, how we started this whole thing off with, I think we've seen that we should listen to Jesus. (laughs) And this year we're going to try to do that together, right? Um, I think it's also just worth noting that we should give our attention to people who are willing to be honest about the paradox of the kingdom. 
um, people who are willing to be honest with us about persecution or spiritual warfare or satanic attacks or self-denial. There are many popular versions of God's kingdom out there right now that are really tempting to believe, but they are not true. Um, Because we must see that rightfully that when things are hard or God calls us to difficult tasks like he will this year, it doesn't mean something is wrong with us or that God has abandoned us. It actually means that the kingdom of God is at hand. If the king himself lived in this upside-down way and faced hardship and self-denial, then we must be suspicious of people who say that the same won't be true for us. So I'm going to say it again. We must rightfully see that when things are hard or God calls us to difficult tasks, like he will this year, it doesn't mean that there is something wrong with us or that God has abandoned us. It actually means that the kingdom of God is at hand. I'll pray. Oh, dear Lord, these are hard truths to dwell on. Um, and yet, how encouraging that you have gone before us as our representative. Um, I just pray as we embark on this journey together this year that you would meet us um, in your words to us about your kingdom. Um, that we would know that the way up really is down. Um, And the way to life really is death to ourselves and that you would find us there and bless us there. And that the words of our mouths this year and the meditations of our hearts as we gather every Wednesday would be glorifying to you and edifying to us as we strive more and more to figure out what it looks like to be a kingdom people. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.